Welcome to Hype Louisville, where we bring you the most exciting things happening in our city and talk to the people making it happen. Now, here are your hosts, Andrew Beckman and Nathan Shanks. Let's get hyped. Mike, let's uh, let's kind of just hear a little bit about you in particular yeah. um, and and you can kind of roll it into, you know, how you started your company. Yeah. Like, uh, Look, I'm a I'm a local Louisville guy, really Louisville suburb guy. I grew up in Bullock County, Shepherdsville, Mount Washington, went to public schools throughout, you know, can't say I'm a St. X grad, love St. X, that was son there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, I went to Bullet Central High School and then and then found my way to UofL and fell in love with computers about when computers were starting to hit, yeah. right? I, yeah. I saw my very first computer my senior year in high school it was an Apple IIe, and they, oh, really? they were just starting to get into schools. Wow. And I flipped out, loved it. Yeah. Became a little obsessive over that. Um, ended up going into uh, speed school, wanted to be a, a, a software engineer. Started down that and got about a year into that. And what I found is that while I liked computers and de- developing software and I was writing code and all that, uh, I really was fascinated by the business side. So I flipped over and took a course there on, uh, it was the first year they were starting to put it together, but it was really applying computers into business, right? So you were getting into, but but with that, you had to learn marketing and accounting and finance and, and some econ and, <clears throat> and then figure out how computers were going to transform business, right? So that's kind of where I, I was doing that. While I was at UofL, one of my instructors who was teaching an assembler class, which is a language if you don't design hardware, you don't you don't learn it ever mm-hmm. even. But it was a, a class I was taking, and my professor basically said, "Hey, he was working for a small Louisville company, and and was looking for a student to hire to help him set up computers." And so that got me into my first real job, where I was uh, I was there to kind of take this little business and and what you set up that? an accounting system. This would have been uh, eighty five. Eighty five. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So how old? Eighty five. Eighty six. Huh? How old were you? Uh, I would have been. Uh, about 21, 21 22, more, maybe yeah. 21, 22. I ended up working for that company for the next eight or nine years. It was 30 people when I got there and less than 100 when I left. But it was a cool company. I got to learn a lot. And I think when you start your career in a small company and it's a growing small company, the advantage you get is everybody does everything. So I got yeah. to yeah. I got to learn a lot about their accounting systems. I got to go sell product. I invented an idea while I was there and helped develop a product for them. Um, I was, uh, got to do, you know, product marketing, selling, you know, it's, you just got a touch of everything, which was, mm-hmm. which is kind of really good training for starting a company. Yeah. And so, right. you know, after I was there seven or eight years, I was running product and engineering and, and, um, and knew I wanted to start a company. I'd tried starting several companies and wrote some software that didn't go anywhere very much. But, um, the, the, the guy who was working for me running our engineering team was a Vietnamese American. I got him, Jung Nguyen. He's one of my favorite guys on the planet still today. And Jung um, was the best engineer I'd ever seen. Uh, he was brilliant. Uh, he was quiet. Um, uh, you knew he was brilliant. The story I love to tell about him in electronic systems is we had a team full of engineers, computer science guys, all out of U of L. And there was back in the day, there was a, a contest that would come out in a magazine, and it would—it was a computer science magazine. And every every month, they'd put out a math puzzle for the the science nerds, right? Yeah, yeah. And we'd stick like it on our board. Goodwill. Hunting. And all these guys would go to work trying to solve the puzzles, right? <laughs> and there was one in particular that had been up for a week or so, and nobody'd really done anything with it. <laughs> Jung walks in, looks at it for a few minutes, sits down, scratches some stuff out, solves the puzzle, right? In literally <laughs> twenty or thirty minutes. <laughs> Mails his solution in. 
Um, and a month or so later, they put out an article saying this puzzle, the solution we got was not the solution we had figured out. <laughs> He found it. But it's way better. <laughs> oh my and they pushed God. an article out about his solution to that math <laughs> oh problem. Right? This guy's just, he was off the chart. He's just smart and he's an immigrant computer too, science. Right? Literally showed up here, escaped Vietnam in a, a story that could be a movie. Yeah. Almost yeah. died multiple yeah. times. Wow. Uh, shows up in Louisville uh, with nothing but the clothes on his back on Thanksgiving Day in like 1981 or something when I'm wow. a junior in high school, right? And goes to the Americana Apartments. Over there by uh, Iroquois? Yeah. Oh. He was shoved right there. That's where he starts his career in the U.S. Oh, wow. Young, wow. Uh, young, his English is kind of poor, even though in Vietnam, by the time he was 14, I think they already had him in college. I mean, he was that smart. <laughs> so Jung goes to JCC so that he can learn English well enough and get his some basic stuff. And while he's at JCC, he takes a math test. He gets the top grade they'd ever had in the state. <laughs> And because his English was weak, they thought he must no. have cheated. Oh, oh, man. So they gave him the test again, uh-huh. and he got a higher score the <laughs> second time. Wow. And so he spends a little time at U of there and then eventually gets to L, gets his master's degrees while he's working in restaurants, yeah. you know, uh, gets his uh, computer science degree, and then found his way to the company I was at. So that's where we met. We became great friends. He's wow. uh, a brilliant guy and a unbelievably high integrity guy, and his story is amazing. And so he and I were already in our in our thoughts around how we could go start a company. And the genesis of Apris was <clears throat> in December of 1993. So uh, there's a young girl here in Louisville named Mary Byron, and she was breaking up with her boyfriend. And uh, when he uh, uh, comes to her house and attacks her, basically. Uh, he's arrested, and while he's arrest, being arrested, he's telling her, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Told her family he's going to kill her. So he goes down to the Jefferson County Jail, and uh, and uh, the judge, because he knew he was a threat, set him a very high cash bond, I think $100,000. Yeah, which in 93, right? And, yeah, and it had to be cash, and he had no means. He worked right. at a construction job. Um, so his, the judge didn't think he'd get out. Mm-hmm. But guess what? He spent a lot of his time in jail calling his the owner of his construction company, who he happened to know, and ended up convincing the guy the whole thing was a setup, and that guy posts a $100,000 cash bond for oh me to get out. When he gets out, he wants to kill her, but he doesn't want to just go kill her right away. Her birthday is two weeks away, so her yeah. 21st birthday, and he wants to kill her on her birthday because he wants her family to have that anniversary. That's yeah. how sick domestic violence is. <laughs> and so he does just that. He gets a gun. He plots and waits for her to come out of her place of work on her 21st birthday and Mall walks St. up Matthews, to her car right? and murders saw Mall St. Matthews. So now I had no connection to that other than I was a guy in Louisville. Young and I were trying to figure out how to start companies and, and sitting around brainstorming all the time. And we saw the six o'clock news and Mary's parents were on the news the next day saying, this is so tragic because we knew he would kill her. And if they had just called us and said he was out of jail, we would have. We would have known, and we would have taken her out of town. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't have been in Louisville. Yeah. Um, And that not knowing is what caused her death, right? Well, that that instantly resonated to us as a problem. And Jung and I, the next morning, both walked in and said, did you see this show, this news story? And, and of course, we both had the same answer. And for us, just based on what we've been working on and thinking about, um, you know, it was a problem of connecting data that was sitting in a computer in a jail with a way to get it out to the public, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the telephone at that time was the way. We didn't have an internet in 93, right, right. 94. 
So we immediately, I called Judge Armstrong's office and started re- doing the, the groundwork of what are you guys doing? Found out there was a committee to study it, figured out how to get in with that committee, start proposing to them a way to automate this where, because people aren't going to be able to track everybody down, but computers can. Right. And, uh, and, and, and that committee ended up saying, yeah, we're going to build this thing. And Jung and I basically uh, helped them think through how to write a specification for it. And then they went off and bid it, right? They put a bid out. And it was AT&T and all these big telecom companies were on it. And Jung and I made up a company name and wrote up a response and sent it in, thinking we had zero chance. Right, yeah. right. And the true story is we were out in early 1994. So probably, in, uh, I want to say this is April of so of 94. Jung and I are on Hurstburn Lane washing my car at lunch, talking about, you know, the world yeah <laughs> and a radio show comes on that says local company infostrat which was the name we made up <clears throat> awarded a contract to build the, the vic- automated victim notification system and we said wow is that the name we use because we literally made a name up an hour before we turned it <laughs> yeah. Yeah. this is why you're washing and your we car. had set up a we were washing our car and have heard the news story and that's how we found out Oh and then God. we had set up a, a, a um, we had set up a, a television uh, I mean a telephone answering service in case they needed us and all of a sudden reporters were calling <laughs> <clears throat> and the reporters were saying we want to come to your office and hear about where else you've built this system and we were like we don't have oh, you know, we've never done anything <laughs> the office is going to be Jung's basement yeah. deer in the headlights like oh and my so God. I didn't know what to do so I went home that afternoon and I told my wife Kathy I said pack the kids up we're going to go to Florida tomorrow morning because what I'm going to tell people is I'm sorry I'm on vacation I'm not in town and we literally did that we got everybody ready we put them in the car we drove to Florida just to get away so we didn't have to deal with the media Yeah, because they were all this was big news story Mm because of the death of Mary Byron and then we've got to build this system we want to come see who's going to build it and we we just couldn't do that because we didn't have anything to show them Mm -hmm. so we avoided the news I think I talked to a couple of them and worked our way through that and then it kind of died down and then we got our contract in June of that year and we went out, and, and the cost of the equipment we needed to build this thing was more than the contract. I think we got a $60,000 contract, and we had to go borrow from everybody we knew enough money to buy $60,000 worth of equipment right, right. or right. more. And then we set it up in his basement and started building the software. And that's the beginning of the company. I mean, we didn't know where it was going to go. We, 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 we literally thought this would be a single project for one county, and we'd get money off of it mm-hmm. and then figure out how we're going to do another one. Right, but yeah. maybe not this. We didn't know, and so they we spent those six months building, and then by the end of that year, in December of ninety uh, ninety four, a year after she was killed, the system goes online, and it was huge. I mean, it lit up like a Christmas tree. People started talking about it all over the country, awesome. um, and and then we said, "Wow, maybe we can quit our jobs because we were doing this in Yanks, yeah, right, wow. in his basement." So we we both ended up. Reaching out to Doug Cobb and David Jones and Chrysalis Ventures, mm-hmm. uh, who we only met once, um, and got them to invest in, in that uh, early 1995 enough money. I think the first investment was $350,000 so we could quit our jobs, set up a real office, and start <laughs> trying to go sell this to other places. Yeah. yeah. And that was kind of the, the phase one of how, how to start your company. And it was crazy. And, you know, so you opened up your doors and we borrowed. We found out Bellarmine had some desks and equipment they were giving away. We went and picked them up in a truck. You know, we we had no money. Even when we got the three hundred fifty, we were like, we knew that was gonna have to last a while. And so yeah, we were super yeah. cheap. Right. And, uh, yeah. and uh, so that was the that was the first day. That was day one. Really, I remember when we quit our jobs and 
our old company kind of had a party for us and <clears throat> it was a scary thing and 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 because I, we were making okay money at, back in that day i mean we had families i had all my kids yeah um, yeah young had his kids two of them uh, two of them i think and uh, we were quitting pretty good jobs for something that might not make it, right? We right. knew that. Uh, but I think both our wives were really okay with the fact that, look, we don't have a lot already, so why not just <laughs> yeah, give know, it a if, shot? If we go to zero, we just go back and start again, and we weren't that far ahead of that. So we had nothing. <laughs> well, yeah. I think you look back at most really successful people, and there's always a point in their life where they took a risk. Yeah. yeah. Similar to, yeah. to they, they just kind of burn the boats and – go for it well and so. they also have failed a lot of times yeah you do in fact yep. i think you keep taking risks there yeah. were lots of other uh-huh. times throughout for the next five years we were taking lots of risks like you know you had all kinds of moments where it could go one way or the other yeah yep. yeah and uh I, that's why i always tell entrepreneurs they're getting started you know don't fool yourself into believing only smart people make it or only mm-hmm. people who work really hard make it there's two or three things you got to be smart uh, not just on coming up with what you're going to do, but making right decisions along the way when you have to make changes, right? you got to mm-hmm. have an instinct for that. That's an entrepreneur. And I really do think people are born to have that yeah. instinct, right? Yeah. you got to work really hard because, I mean, there's just no other way. And, and mm-hmm. then the third thing is you got to have a good break or two, right? Yeah. you got to have some luck. Yeah. And there's a lot of smart people that worked hard that didn't get the right break. Yep. Um, for us, what was really cool was in December, in, in March of 95, when we're launching Vine, which is about helping crime victims stay informed. Mm-hmm. The O.J. Simpson trial goes on on national news, and it's for the next nine months. That's oh all gosh. you're seeing is so domestic violence. O.J. Yeah. O.J. Yeah. And 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 what the O.J. Simpson trial fueled was all the states began passing legislation yeah. around crime victims' rights to be notified, yeah. rights to be informed. Right. All those crime victims' legislations began in the mid '90s, mm-hmm. and for the next five years, state after state were just passing these laws, creating yeah. notification mandates. Well, guess what? We were the guys that could automate it. And were you still? Is that when you were on the road? Oh yeah. I mean, that first two years, I was dry. I mean, I, I basically we had two people. We had an accounting person we hired, but Young went in one room and started writing all the software. And you went. I went and got a 19, gosh, it would have been a 92 Mitsubishi Gallant Mm. and got in it. And I drove. And I drove every time a state would pass a law, Florida passed their law. I would would leave Sunday, drive to Florida. I'd have appointments all week long in Florida, hit the county, 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 counties. And then I'd come home Saturday. I'd be home for about a day, maybe a half a day, and then head right back out. I was, I think I drove. 72,000 miles the first year <laughs> on a crappy car. And, there, and we Kathy had, was raising. Kathy raised the kids. I mean, those first few years, I, that's why I love these grandkids because yeah. the, when my kids were little, I was very, yeah. I, I don't remember a lot of the birthday stuff and, and, and preschool and all that because I was gone. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, so I had a contest where I would see what's the cheapest hotel I could sleep in. What's and sometimes it was rest stops, <laughs> but there was one in Patterson, New Jersey, that was scary. You know? I'm talking. Kelly would not. Have I'm talking. Literally, would rent it by the hour. Oh, but I yeah. got in there at one or two in the morning. It was the only place I could find, and my meeting was the next morning at eight at Patterson, New Jersey. So You're I lying. stayed there. I got it for six hours, and I was happy with that. So I need to. I think it's over here. Oh, there you go. You got it. Yeah. So um, that's hilarious. Crazy times. That's hilarious. Those, and you know, it's like raising kids and you're going to learn this. And have you got kids? I do. One, yeah. one little girl. The, yeah. the great thing about kids and starting businesses is, are, are that 20 years later, 
you're only going to remember the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, right. The, the 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 days when you thought you're going bankrupt, where you had to have a check land, or you can't make payroll, mm-hmm. uh, where you you don't think you're going to make it. There were a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. I don't want anybody yeah. to think Appers was this easy little. It just took yeah. off. It did not. Yeah. yeah. We we had all those moments that all these businesses have, but uh, you know. Uh, what about but, that beer nose pizza? But you remember the fun stuff. Yeah. Right. The Beer Nose Pizza story is a good one. We had an issue. You know, look, Appris had started having some success. We're a year and a half into the business. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll summarize the story. At the end of the day, uh, we needed more capital. And we needed more capital because we signed a bunch of contracts. And we had to go hire people to deliver on them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But our original capital was running low. It's a common problem. People never have enough capital in the first bite. It's right. almost sure you're going to need more down the road. And we were at a point where we needed it, but like many entrepreneurs, we were struggling with how much of the company to give up. Uh, our investors were uh, ready to put more capital in, but it was going to cause us to go out of control. We didn't want to do it. So we had a real tough moment with our investors. And, and, and ultimately, the resolution of that tough moment was, well, if you guys don't want to go out of control, let's just both put capital in. And so we looked at them and said, okay, that's what we'll do. That way we can keep without diluting. The problem is we didn't have any money. We were broke. We had already mortgaged all our stuff. And so we didn't know how we were going to do it. The night we agreed to that, we walked out and said, what do we do now? I mean, we don't know. And we started networking with people we knew, seeing if there was anybody out there who would loan us capital personally. Um, and we found somebody through that network and met them at Beer Nose Pizza down by the bridge and next to the Yum Center. Uh, and, and we meet this old fellow that looked like a farmer from Eastern Kentucky. And we were like, seriously, this guy's got money. <laughs> and we tell our story and he says, well, how much you need? And I said, well, you know, we need $270,000. <laughs> and this is 90. Yeah. This guy had glasses with tape in the middle where he had not wanted to fix his glasses. So it was like a, at that point I'm thinking this is like ridiculous. Right? Yeah. He looks over and he goes, well, I'll do it. Wow. And on a handshake, he agrees. And what we, what we originally planned to do was to say, look, one day you'll just have to trust us. We'll uh, we'll pay you back based on the company. But the way our agreement was with our investors, we could not in any way pledge our stock. Right. So what we had to do was get him to agree to a note. And yeah. he gave us a 20% interest note that he wouldn't require any payment on for up to 10 years. Right. Mm-hmm. And that solved our problem. We got our money and we're able to make the investment. Uh, but what we told him is, You'll just have to trust us on this. Yeah, yeah. But if if the company has an event down the road that gets you a better return than that 20%, we're going to make you good on it. Yeah. But that's just, we can't write that. Right, We can't right. commit we to can't it, but, but we will. Yeah. yeah. And um, so we did that. And um, the, the the next big event was the first time we had a big liquidity event with Apris. Uh, and the company was valued at like $127 million. This would have been in 2007. Mm-hmm. It was about 10 years after that guy's note was up. And so we called him up and After said- After it was up? Yeah, it was, it was a, no, it was 10 years. It was about oh, when okay. the note was coming okay. up. Okay, okay, gotcha. So we called the guy, it had been 10 years, and we said, here, we're ready to give you your money. And it ended up, his 270000 became like $3 million or something like that. <laughs> yeah, awesome. And so we were writing those checks to him, and uh, we went back and did the math of what it would be if we, he'd gotten the valuation of the company versus his 20% interest compounded. It was within $50,000 of each other. <laughs> like wow. it was just by happenstance that he yeah. kind of got a 20% return on his money yeah. Yeah. over over 10 years. Yeah. So, uh, 
but I mean, how do you find a guy at Bernal's Pizza that Can't will write you, you a check on a handshake like that, unsecured notes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how that happens other than just that's that lucky break I talked about. That's you know? crazy. Yeah. If that doesn't happen, we dilute significantly. It would have made a huge difference in how the company was run. It would have made a huge difference in the outcome of us personally. It would have been yeah. different. Yeah. Big. So, yeah. You, you know, sometimes it's just getting lucky. Yeah. A lot of times it is. So. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, what were some of the things that um, that you saw, and it can be recently as mm -hmm. well, that that um, in regards to the city of Louisville and how why you decided to headquarter Acres and keep it here in yeah. Louisville when you're a tech company? And yeah. So I'll tell you, I think the and, and this is the you know I've have said this to a lot of folks I know at GLI, and I think anybody who's an entrepreneur in Louisville probably knows this. The reason we were in Louisville is Jung and I were in Louisville. Yeah. It was our home. Same reason Humana's in Louisville. Mm -hmm. David Jones and Wendell Cherry were in Louisville. They're yeah. Louisville guys, right? Yeah. So, you know, you don't find a lot of examples of companies that were founded and built somewhere else and then moved to Louisville. Right. Right? Yeah. And now you do find companies, you you think about companies that get moved to the West Coast, and, and sometimes that happens because they're bought by private equity companies and they move companies to get cheaper labor or solve some other problem or combine them with another company. But the, the real way for Louisville to have entrepreneurial companies is to grow them here, right? Grow entrepreneurs. You need Louisville entrepreneurs to build them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and um, for us, it was just happenstance we started in Louisville. And, and uh, But there's great companies right now in Louisville, El Toro. Um, uh, edge analytics, you know, uh, tech companies that are emerging in Louisville, but they're all started by Louisville people. Mm -hmm. And that's what's cool. I mean, that's yep. why Louisville needs to really celebrate and encourage, you know, entrepreneurial ventures. The biggest thing we have that, that traditionally is different in Midwest cities and the coasts. Um, I, I don't think it's that we don't have a lot of capital. Most good businesses can get funded. They don't even have to get funded in Louisville. They can stay in Louisville and they'll get funded from other places, right? right. They got to know how to do that. Uh, the biggest thing is I think culturally in Louisville, if you go back 10, 15, 20 years, failure was always kind of viewed as a failure. If somebody started something and didn't work out, then it gets around in Louisville. Oh, they, they failed at that. They probably go fail at the next thing. And where if you go to the New York and you go to the Bay Area, I mean, people are proud. Oh, yeah, I had six companies I've started. You know, two of them did okay. One, of, you know, four of them wiped out. But yeah. I'm ready to get a billion dollars and go start this next one. And people mm -hmm. love that. They're yeah. like, oh, well, yeah. you've already figured out how to not fail. Yeah. You know, you you figured out your failure. By, by fit. Yeah, yeah. And 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 leaning in on failures as mm -hmm. a learning experience and not yeah. a, a not a bad thing mm -hmm. is is something I think culturally we're we're starting to figure it out. But I, I, you know, that's something that's different. I think. But but I mean, good companies in Louisville are started by Louisville people. That tends to be the case. Yeah. Do you find it difficult to, to keep talent here? or like uh, Over the years, I mean, it's been different levels of problem. The world's changing on that, particularly now with COVID, for sure. Mm -hmm. Tech talent um, can go anywhere. Tech talent has always, for quite a long while, can go anywhere. But, um, but I would tell you there's a lot of people who, a few years ago, would say, yeah, I'm a great engineer. I'm working for this cool Louisville company, whether it's Zermed or Apris or one of the others, and then, and then says... Um, you know, I could go work for Google or, or Amazon, but I kind of like having the vibe of this office and all mm -hmm. that and a team and all the that, culture. right? The culture. And certainly that stuff's important. But with COVID, we've just spent 18 months, everybody's remote, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that even encourages more the idea that my remote team could be anywhere, mm -hmm. right? Didn't yeah. have to be little. So I think we're seeing changes that are going to be even more challenging. And all that's going to mean is uh, competition for that talent is leveling out. Right, geography no longer matters. So, yeah. what that means, though, is uh, 
you know, uh, it could mean cost goes up because some of those p- folks are going to get a job with a West Coast company and and their salaries may be higher than what we get in Louisville. Mm-hmm. But um, but it also means we could go find engineers. They're smart engineers in you know uh, an hour and a half from here in little towns in in uh, Kentucky or mm-hmm. Indiana. What we need to be figuring out is how to turn that kid who graduated from Purdue that's an hour drive from Louisville into a Louisville Tech employee. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. They might not need to come here every day, but how do we go find those? Right. Yeah. So we're going to have to find ways to the Jared do that. Oldham's of the world. The Jared Oldham's of the yeah. world. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And then he could ride on your bike team as well. <laughs> How killer that? You're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, one step ahead of me there. Here's another reason, Jared. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have a theory around uh, remote working, and I'm curious yeah. your opinion on it. Mm-hmm. So I think it's working really well right now mm-hmm. because everyone at one point a year ago had worked together yeah. in person. They know each other really well. Yeah. They'd been together, right? Yeah. And now the culture's good. They're the uh, chemistry is good and they've been working remotely successfully for the most yeah. part. Yeah. So as that, as those relationships change, people switch jobs, yeah. you have new people coming in. Do you see challenges around yeah. keeping that success? With Absolutely. Remote work? I, I, my, my view of this, and it's just my personal view is look, everybody has spent a lot of time through COVID saying, Oh, remote's been easy. Oh, it's been great. We, we went right to it. It's been as good as anything. Everybody's lying a little bit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Remote is not as good. B. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not as good. That's what you want to say during COVID because we didn't have a lot of choice. Everybody right. was going to be remote, right? right. And you right. and and compared to what your fears would have been, it did go really well for a lot of tech yeah. companies, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it is not the same. I think you're going to see companies, tech companies included, that are going to try to really reel it back in, get their offices back, get and some level of balance between remote and office work. Yeah. And I think there is going to be some amount of pullback on that for people who do enjoy the remote environment. They're mm-hmm. going to say, ah, why do I need to be in the office two days a week or three days a week? Yeah. But that tension's always there. And I think where we will, we will move back to offices, right? Yeah. Uh, I think you'll see companies in, 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 that have less interest in having a 10 person office, you know, where you have acquired a little company and you got 10 people in Denver that you maintain a facility for yeah. that might not be that big a deal, right? right, right if that group right. just stays remote, but yep. but, but everybody's get, and when you have a significant amount of workforce, getting them together, there's too many advantages to being in a building together that you don't yeah. get. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I I think we are going to move back that way fairly soon, mm-hmm. and I think there'll be a period of time where there's a little tension about it and 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 complaining about it, but we're going to get there. Because yeah. you're right, it's not it's not as good. Anybody who tries to say it's as good is a little bit of a spin master. <laughs> yeah. uh, you saw this a few years ago with Yahoo. Yahoo were one of the first companies to adopt that whole oh results oriented yeah, results oriented work, and we're going to go this. But but it wasn't working for them. Yeah, and they when they and then when they pulled it back, they everybody felt like they were the Grinch that took away their right. Christmas, Christmas presents. Yeah. In reality, they just said this experiment doesn't work as well. Yeah. We're, and, and it's like most things in life. A little bit of remote work does work. Giving yeah. people some flexibility. I've always thought it's different to have an environment where you can say, look, if you got a reason you can't be at the office, whether it's I got a doctor's appointment, my kid's sick, uh, I got something going on at my house. Plumber. Right. You yeah. need to be, have, have the, the flexibility, flexibility to say, hey, to... I'm doing a remote day today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But doing it just because you want to sit home in your pajamas and do your yeah. job, right, right. not a good idea. I think it yeah. goes back to just being a, a professional. You know, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, you, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, I certainly, um, you know, think this goes to kind of a point that you mentioned in another topic. But you know, my dad, who came from the hotel space, says that you know, 
conventions and big group meetings like that, you know, although yes, you could do it Zoom, they're gonna come back because people like to socialize. Mm -hmm. Right. People wanna be, and you, you're the, the advantages in real estate alone by being in my office, you hear so many deals yeah. and situations and you collaborate and that creates you're, a creative You're aspect. never gonna exchange yeah. as much information as you do face-to-face. -face. Right. Yeah. The, you know, it's just people aren't going yeah. to, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I think I think there's a real compelling reason to draw. So what companies are going to do is they're going to start getting creative on how they draw people back, right? Yeah, because they know they're kind of getting settled into this. They don't really want to do it. Yep. So you're going to see people doing all the hey, we have free breakfast Wednesday, Tuesday, yeah, Wednesday, Thursday. Of yeah, in the office. That's well, like uh, in the you know, game room. At, right? well, yeah, well, yeah. Apra spent a lot of time and money trying to figure out a way to make our culture and our office fun. Yeah, uh, got stole some of the ideas. You know, we we mm -hmm. went down to uh, I was at down with Stacy at. Uh, um, at um, uh, El, Toro El Toro once, and I walked by and I said, why do you have a barber chair in the hall? Oh, we've got this oh, barber that trim. comes here. Yeah. Now it's Trimco, but back then yeah. it was just a barber who came in. Yep. It was Dan's barber, and Dan said, I hate driving over here to get my hair cut. Why, if I set you a chair in my office when you can cut other people's hair, would you do it? And so the barber comes and does it, and, and he's doing it. And I said, that is so cool. Yeah. And Stacy cool. goes, we're even thinking about starting that as a company. You want to be our test? <laughs> Appris was one of the first places that put in a Trimco office. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I thought it was great. And and it was there for one reason only. Your employees talk about that kind of cool stuff. Oh, yeah. Yep. They go yeah. home and tell their spouses and friends, yeah. oh, yeah. we get haircuts free at Appris, or we get a yeah. low-cost haircut. Man, they yeah. upped their bourbon bar, too, didn't they? Their bourbon at the new place, At the new I'm office. I'm so envious and jealous. I'm coming down there. <laughs> Yeah, I sent Sean. Uh, it's ridiculous. I went into Trim Nulu and got a haircut and yeah. saw Sean. And uh, I, as a thank you, I sent him a little uh, bourbon stave. Yeah. that still had the char on it. And you yeah. can you can take the like a what do you call it a blowtorch? Oh yeah, and it smokes it up and you put your, put glass, your glass on, on it. top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so awesome. he was like, "Come on over, we'll we'll try it out." And, yeah, and, but yeah, that's overlooking downtown on that patio and. It's pretty sweet. Their office is awesome. And yeah, I think really that, is. you know, I'm so proud of what they've done because that's, you know, they're leaning in on that new Lou and yeah. that tech yeah. vibe down there. And to yeah. me, they are doing as much as anybody in Louisville to get that going. Yeah. And it's going to happen from companies. It's not going to happen from the government, right? right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the government's got so many other issues they're struggling with. But if we're going to create a tech-enabled culture and a tech uh, environment for our companies it's going to happen from the companies themselves and I think yeah. El Toro is leading people. the way Edge is leading the way you know they're all down there trying to create that vibe in New Lou and I mm -hmm. think it's a great thing yeah they're local people yep. yeah it's pretty cool mm -hmm. um, kind of switching gears here yeah. what would you say are some of the uh, basic things you did on a daily basis when you were running the company at full tilt like yeah it changed <clears throat> so look it changed a lot because one of the things that I think any entrepreneur has to think about Appris grew like crazy, right? Like we yeah. were went from startup to being, you know, five, ten million in revenue to forty million in revenue to eighty million in revenue to you know today close to three hundred, and and um, so your role as an entrepreneur, what you have to decide whether you're running a bakery or a business, you have to decide what your priorities are. And what I mean by that is, what everybody should do is what they do best, right? Yeah. You should really be self aware about what you're great at and then go get everything else, right? That's common sense, but very few do it. A lot of entrepreneurs, by definition, are control freaks, and they think they got to do everything, and every decision's got to be theirs. And the quicker you, you know, what you're really saying, if you want to make every decision, is you're going to let your business get as big as it can be where one person can manage everything, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's limiting. Yeah, that's and, and, you, and if you're in a really business that's growing, you're going to hit that limit very quick. 
And so most entrepreneurs have to decide, am I a sales product guy? Am I a technician? Am I an engineer? A lot of companies are started by engineers. Am I brilliant at finance and raising? Am I a management guru? What is it you, that, that, that you're great at? And put yourself in a position to do mostly that. So as I went through APRIS early on, everybody's doing everything. But by the time you get to be a $10 million company with 100 people, you're having to decide how to pick a job, right? right. It's, I can't do everything. And so at that time, uh, I knew what I wanted to do and what I was great at was trying to go figure out products and ideas and and go out into the market and interact with customers and figure out what we were going to do next, right? Vine was up and going. What's our next product going to be? Jung and I, Jung, Jung was engineering, right? And what we needed was somebody to figure out how do you go grow a management team and organize this thing like a real company. It's we got enough people around here, we gotta grow up. And it's not a it's not a family anymore, right? Right. And and so we we encouraged and, and was able were able to get Doug Cobb at the time who was the head of Greater Louisville Inc., but he was also an investor and had become a good friend of ours. And we encouraged Doug, you come be our CEO. You be the guy to go figure out how we're gonna build a management team. Uh, Jung's gonna be in engineering and Jung was gearing up anyway to go go back to Vietnam and help his family some because we had had enough success he could do that. He wa- he wanted to do that. And I, I wanted to just go figure out the next thing we're going to do, right, besides Vine. And so we, we hired the job, CEO. We viewed that as that's a skill set. You know, you got to go mm-hmm. hire managers. You got to figure out how to set up procedures and work with a board and raise capital and all that. Mm-hmm. And we were inexperienced at it. And it's not even what we like to do at that time. So early in that, in what I would call that middle phase of the company, we'd had some success. We went from a entrepreneurial startup to a company that was on a growth path and Doug came in at that time and he took on that role and he was the perfect guy to do that. I mean, he helped us over the next nine years continue to grow. We grew from 10 to $40 million in sales. We invented our second and third product. I was out working on figuring out how we took victim notification and take the data that we were collecting about all these guys moving in and out of of jails and prisons and courts and build products that would help law enforcement. So our second product was, it was called Justice Exchange. It was a product that let law enforcement track sex offenders, serve warrants, do all kinds of stuff, right? And and then the third idea I was working on was about cold medicine, where we were gonna track everybody who buys cold medicine to prevent it from being diverted in a meth lab. So we were on that that path. So I was out working on those issues, continuing to help Vine grow. Doug was building the management team. Um, Jung had gone back to Vietnam. He was still on our board, but he, he was back in Vietnam. And, and that middle phase of the company, my job was uh, chief product and, and go-to-market guy, right? That's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug decides he's done. He wants to retire in 2009, right? So been nine years. And we were deciding, all right, do we go hire another CEO? And I keep doing what I'm doing. But at that point, um, we, we were at a point where we had already... Had, a, had an event in 07 where we had a big liquidity event. We had more. The company was even much bigger. Uh, and we were at a phase where we were ready to reinvent ourselves again. So when Doug leaves, I decided to jump back in the CEO seat. So in 2010, uh, I became the CEO. And Jung was gone by then. And uh, uh, and so at that point, I was, for me, the CEO job, that I the way I approached it was probably a little different than Doug. Um, Doug was a very internally focused guy. So when he and I were at APRIS, I was out engaged in the market. Our customers had never met him and really, you know, they knew Mike Davis. They didn't know this guy, Doug Cobb, back in Louisville. But he was building our culture. He was building our management team. He was driving strategy. He was helping work with our board. So all those jobs he was doing. What, What I wanted to do, he was kind of our CFO. We really didn't have a strong CFO through that phase either. 
Um, when I came back in 2010, I needed to go put the team around me because yeah. I knew what I was good at was the product stuff. So I went and hired a great CFO. Uh, I put a chief technology officer in place. Young had been gone. Uh, I went out and hired, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a really solid product guy, Chris Sastry, shortly after, within a couple of years of that. Oh, uh, who was Yeah, to, to help take over product strategy and all that. So for me, the CEO job was about building a world-class team around yeah. me. Yeah. And then I worked with the board and did that. And then um, company goes from in 2007, we were 40-something million, to by 2000 and, uh 14, we were, you know, 80, 90 million. We had another event where we bring in uh, our, our uh, next investor group. They paid, I think, $360 million for the company. Um, and at that time, what they really were, we really started focusing on was expanding our growth strategy. We had, we had begun to develop our opioid strategy that we're heavily into now around healthcare. Our cold medicine thing had gone really well. We had victim notification. We had these products around law enforcement. And so we began in 2015 focusing on how can we grow beyond just organic inventing ideas. Let's go start acquiring some companies. We were big enough then to start doing that. Mm -hmm. So we began a series of acquisitions that uh, I think over the next few years, we made 15 acquisitions in those spaces where we'd buy smaller companies uh, that helped us in retail analytics, helped us in health, helped us in uh you know, expand the data sets we had to help law enforcement and others, so right? Horizontal integration. Yeah, yeah. And so, we and we built a better team. And, and so, uh, you know, the last, you know, four years later, we had new investors come in. They valued the company at $1.25 billion. Yeah, and and, uh, and 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 we are you know and we've continued down that path. We've done more acquisitions since then, and so company the company today is organized around three kind of themes. One is risk around people, right? It's a it's around and in that business, while victim notification is what we started, that's a relatively small business part of that business. Mm-hmm. It's a thirty million dollar business out of a hundred and eighty million, right? Yeah, and the whole company is thirty. It's only ten percent of the whole company, right? Yeah. So victim notification is still really important to us, but it's a uh, it's relatively small. And then and then we've got um, you know this risk around people. We've got this retail division that focuses on risk in retail. And then we've got this healthcare IT business where we really have been fighting the opioid crisis. And it's an amazing, it's the fastest growing thing we've got. Wow. And uh, and we just did a half a billion dollar acquisition in that space uh, to buy another company named Patient Ping out of uh, of. Uh, Boston. So in this last phase of the the you know of CEO, really the the when I jumped back into CEO, what I really focused on was how do we grow faster through acquisitions and so forth. This last phase, um, when our last investor group came in in 2018, um, I knew I was going to be approaching a point where I wanted to make a transition because um, you know I, I loved what I was doing, but um, for personal reasons, my dad died at my age I'm at now. Wow. Uh, my mom uh, really developed early onset Alzheimer's, so by the time her late 60s, she was starting to get those symptoms. And and for me, I don't know what else. I I, I had Apris has been a great 25 year run. Uh, I was fortunate they put me in the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame that same year. Um, I looked back and said, look, I can keep doing this, but if I wait until I'm having I'm miserable coming to work and I'm not excited and enjoying it. I'll be that 75-year-old guy who will die at his desk, right? Mm-hmm. And and my, my point was, look, I want to go, I've got grandkids showing up in my life and I've got other things I want to do. So I told the investors in 18, look, while you're here, we're going to make a transition and I'll stay on as executive chairman. Uh, we already have a guy that we know is our next CEO. In my mind, it was Chris Sastry. 
Chris had invented our health business, grew it. Uh, he went out west coast and ran our retail business and had done a phenomenal job with that. In 2018, uh, when he was done with that, I brought him back to Louisville and he became our chief operating officer. So he had all three business markets reporting to him and he was ready. I mean, internally, he was the guy we were going to pass the reins to. And so, um, you know, our, our plan was to do that in 2020. COVID hit. We were going to do it in January, February, March. COVID hits. So we stopped for a second and we said, let's just see what happens here. Uh, we got ourselves through, you know, where we knew the company was going to be stable. We knew uh, our employees were doing great in that remote environment. Um, and so we went on and decided to go ahead and make that move in August. So we delayed it a, a period of months, but ultimately in August, Chris uh, took over the CEO role. I'm an executive chairman. I don't know what that means other than I, I spend a lot of time with Chris and nobody else. And he and I talk on a regular basis when he just needs somebody to bounce stuff off of. But it was important to me and Chris that when we make that transition, it's clean. There's nobody that thinks that Mike Davis is in there every day you know, making decisions. I'm mm-hmm. not, right? I'm basically his advisor and confidant. If he's got, if he's got something going on and I think it's he's going to make a mistake, I let him know. Uh, I'm not I'm not his guy telling him what to do. He reports to the board the way I did when he was CEO. He's mm-hmm. accountable, but uh, I'm there to help him, not control him, right? And that's yeah. kind of how that relationship should be. And what that means is I spend a little time on APRIS every week, and I love it, and I'm staying pretty plugged into what we're doing. Uh, I'm spending a lot more time with my grandkids. Uh, there's other stuff on my MD 2.0 list I'm not doing so well on. But, <laughs> How's the Spanish? Uh, 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 Spanish has been weak. My piano playing is just getting started, but I'm not near as far along on that. I'm not playing enough guitar. I'm not uh, riding my bike like I want to. So. Uh, what what I've got to think? How's I, your short game? I, I, my short game struggling. Yeah, <laughs> I can hit a, I can get to the green, but twenty yards off, man, I can't get close and make the putt. Yeah, so, you know, uh, you know, I'm playing a little golf, but not Good. not. I think, in fact, I think what I've decided is my MD 2.0 list has fifteen things on it, right? Any <laughs> one of which takes a lot of time to do well. Yes, and I'm trying to time slice and do them all a little bit. <laughs> and I think that my my I, I'm I'm just coming to the conclusion I'm going to reorganize my list. Love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna say, look, for the next two years, I'm gonna shorten it down to six things. Oh, six. And then and then if I'm successful there, every time I get one that I feel like I've made good progress, on, I'll sub one in. I'm gonna come up with a different strategy because what's working. Is, oh, I, get, I mean, yeah. what I'm doing now doesn't work well. Yeah. Well, so in that, so what other is, than grandkids? I was gonna say yeah. you got the important one. Yeah, down. that's the most like, important. Yeah, that that one the, I'm doing great. Yeah, yeah that's the only. Yeah. That's the only one that really matters. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, so I mean, in that vein, what's what do you think the next ten years looks like for you, for Apparis, and you know, from your new perspective? Yeah, I mean, I'm doing a number of things. I mean, when I when I left Apparis, I knew it would be a little, uh, you know, shocking for me to to I can't, uh, so staying a little involved in Apparis is a few hours a week. I'm working on that with Chris, um, just helping him think through things or giving him my opinion on things. Um, I, I joined the, one of the reasons I invested in this. There's a little group in town called Poplar Ventures. Scott John Wilmoth, who I think is a really smart guy, who raised a $25 million private equity fund and is doing some investing in some cool local businesses like uh, um, um, Andy Estes' company, which is Scuvault, right? And uh, um, you know, there's a Pod Chaser, which I was telling you guys about before this podcast. There's some yeah. uh, cool companies that we've invested in. And some friends of mine that I've known for many years, uh, Jim Lacey, Vic Chata, and other folks around town that are entrepreneurs, all invested in this fund too. And then uh, John asked basically entrepreneurs who he knows in Louisville or people who have already made kind of the transition I've made 
to be his investment advisory committee. So we once a month look at companies that, that they're oh, considering okay. investing in and kind of give our opinions, really. But John's driving those. Uh, so I do a little bit of things like that. There's a couple local companies that I've personally invested in that I try to you know stay up with. Um, so I try to have a little balance around that stuff just to kind of keep my pulse on things. And then the rest of the time is around, you know, gosh, today I'm planting my garden. You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, my two-year-old granddaughter is going to be over there. She's going to own the watering can to help plant the water on the seeds. Awesome. And, um, you know, uh, play a little golf and just yeah. enjoy the time that you've got, you know, because mm-hmm. we don't, you know, appreciate the time you've got, really, yeah. is what I yeah. would say. Because yeah. you don't know how any of us know how much we have. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. And then mm-hmm. what do you... What do you think uh, Louisville needs to do, or that yeah. you see Louisville? How do you see Louisville looking like in the next ten years? Yeah. You know, or maybe five years. Yeah, I lean in on Louisville. I think it's going to be great in in the next five to ten years. I think you know we were at a pinnacle, in my opinion. I mean, Louisville was rocking and rolling. Yes, in at the beginning of twenty twenty, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and then we got double punched. I think for lots of reasons, and yep. and uh, so. Uh, I think we will get back to that point quicker than people maybe, you know, I, I hear all kinds of people say, oh, downtown won't be the same for 10 years. I yeah. don't believe that for a minute. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think we're going to get back much quicker than that. Um, uh, and and so I'm optimistic on the next five years. Um, and I think that uh, the challenge Louisville has, uh, some of them are, are harder than just how do we create entrepreneurs. It's It's about, you know, when you look at the top 25 cities in the country, Louisville's hovering. I mean, I think we're actually hovering around the bottom of the 50, top 50. But we're, we're you know, in a lot of measures of economic health, right? right? Mm-hmm. And once you go a little further south of being in the top 50, you know, it's an amazing slide. I mean, it's not good. You want yeah. to be up there. And so we're trying to figure out how do you create that type of keep get, getting us in a positive trend. Mm-hmm. You know, we get compared a lot to Nashville, Indianapolis, uh, you know. Yeah, Cincinnati in some ways, but I think a lot of people want to look at Austin and places yeah. like that. Yeah. These are cities that are by all measures, you know, hot, happening, you know, t- not just tech companies, but also just uh, health companies and all kinds of companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're not quite in that league, I don't think. And uh, um, I think where that's going to get moved forward is probably not from, again, the government, as much as, you know, everybody thinks that's who owns that job. It's going to be companies stepping up, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. We've got a few big companies in Louisville, UPS, Humana, uh, uh, that 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 I think could step up and, and, and play a heavier role in that. In other words, uh, and then we've got some younger companies, tech startup companies. Mm-hmm. I think the way that happens is those big companies say, look, how do we make a conscious effort to lift these other companies up? Yeah. So if there's services they're delivering in Louisville uh, that I can benefit from, I need to talk. I need to make it one of my priorities to help work with local companies. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right, right. And, 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 you know, you hear the call for black owned businesses. I think companies should make a priority to try to help work with black owned businesses in Louisville. Right. Yeah. Uh, we've been trying to get, there's a number of, of companies in Louisville that are working on a pledge to do those things. And I think that's a, it's complicated because some of it actually gets into legal issues of what you can and can't commit to, right? Right. But I think it's being worked through, and eventually you're going to see a lot of companies step up. So to me, it's about taking care of our own in our community and getting companies to make that a priority. Hey, just because I can get this a little bit cheaper from a company in Milwaukee, you know, if there's a place here in town I can get it done, yeah, buy local, right, yep. and right. encourage local entrepreneurs <laughs> and give them a give them a lift up, yeah. 
yeah. because the difference on a huge company like Humana of giving an agreement to that local business, it, it doesn't even show up anywhere in their numbers, it won't right? Move the needle. Right. But if it'll help that little local company a little bit, create a few more jobs, yeah. and that, yeah. that's where I think, you know, the bigger you get, and Apris is in this category too, the bigger you get, the more you need to try and reach, look around you and see how what you're doing in your community. Yeah. You know, that's where it's going to come from more than the government. Yeah. Governments aren't great at building the stuff. App recycling will be there to help. You know, yeah, there you go. Owners. App recycling. <laughs> you know, grassroots. Yeah, yep. exactly. Um, all right. Well, you know, kind of wrapping up, one thing we do every every week is, we, you know, you know, what's your favorite place to grab a bite to eat in Louisville? You know, oh, what's wow. your favorite restaurant? I got to tell you, up, and, up until, you know, COVID, and obviously it was one of the tragedies of COVID, I love DECA. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think today, I mean, look, you can't compete with Jeff Ruby's. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, that, that, <laughs> is good. I, mean I think that's, I almost say Jeff Ruby's is right up there and I, from a quality of food and experience. It's the, it's a go-to place. But yep. um, let me think of some place I really like that I think is a little more off the path. Yeah. Used to love Brennan's Catch. Um, yeah. Been there in what a, a place you recently went with uh, at the track? Um, oh, I think that's a great place to talk about. You yes. know, I, first time I'd ever been there. I went last weekend at uh, Matt Wynn Steakhouse yeah. in Churchill Downs. Really impressed. Yeah. You know, okay. yeah. first of all, I mean, I think we, you know, again, Churchill Downs, going out there for an evening of racing and having a really fine dining experience is is a phenomenal combination. Mm-hmm. Matt Wynn's, I was totally impressed with. Probably the best service I've gotten at a, a Louisville restaurant in years. They wow. Were all over you. Wow. Uh, just tremendous service. Food was excellent. Um you know, the bar I always set for things is I say, well, how does that compare with Jeff Ruby's? Mm-hmm. It's, it's you know, Jeff Ruby's is a bit in a class of its own, but this is not far off the pace. Right? Yeah, yeah. So how does and, it work there? Do you have to have tickets to go in you to know, Churchill? Or? I, I think if you can actually get reservations, Matt Wynn Steakhouse is open year-round, first of all, whether right. they're running or not. Uh-huh. Uh, my understanding is, I think you could get a reservation and get a pass to go up and just have the, the go restaurant. have dinner. Yeah, have okay. dinner, and and part of your dinner is you're overlooking the track, whether they're right. running or not. It's a right. beautiful it's place, so, and yeah. especially yeah. with an out of town guest, mm-hmm. you know, what a better place to take an out of town guest or prospect and say, hey, yeah. you're gonna go have a fine dinner, and you're gonna overlook Churchill Downs where the Derby's run. Yeah, yeah. and if yeah. the der- if the horses are running. All the better. I'm sure it's hard to get a reservation when they're running. But is uh, that a Churchill Downs business, or is I it? I think so. Or is he leasing space from them? No, or? I think I think it might be a Churchill Downs business. Okay, yeah. gotcha. That would make sense. Yeah, Matt Wynn's yeah, yeah steakhouse. But I would highly encourage people to go to that place. It was really yeah. good. Cool. Yeah, all right. sweet. And then uh, best Louisville's lucky. We get all four seasons. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. what's your favorite one? Fall. No fall. Yeah. I'm the I'm same way. I'm kind of, yeah. you know, that football weather and that changing of colors. And yep. uh, that's my favorite. Horse Spring's riding. a little wet for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Summer obviously is great, but, but yeah. summer can be a little yeah. humid. Fall for yeah. me is clearly my favorite. Yep. Yeah. Same as a golfer. Yeah. Golfer um, for sure. Yeah. 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 Well, um, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story mm-hmm. with us today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Yeah. We'll have yeah. to have you back on, and you've got me hyped up for the for yeah. next week. Yeah. I'm to, yeah, and I'm hoping Davis is up in the next five minutes so I can well, get there. And yeah, we're right on have time. Have a little grandson time. <laughs> yeah, really. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and right. stay tuned for the next episode. Great.